Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Wu, delighted after a little this many weeks to welcome back my homie Jeremy Goldcorn, aka Jimmy, the man behind Danway.com. Jeremy. Happy New Year! Happy Year of the Horse! Mashang Yu Tian. I'm also glad to see that you have not traded your already dilute South African accent for a genteel Tennessee drawl after. How long has it been? How long were you in Nashville now? Well, on and off for five weeks, <laughs> but I spent plenty of time in New York and other places where they look down on the South. Right. But uh, I would like to trade my accent for a, a Tennessee drawl. It's it's very it's genteel, a very fine so. accent. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. Of, among um, Southern. Accents. I think Tennessee is probably my favorite. Tennessee's. Got I got a lot to recommend it. It sure does. Uh, anyway, we look forward to hearing uh, the, the the product of your 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 wife's time in the studio over there. Yeah, I don't know when though. You know, okay. but sometime. Anyway, um, not too long after the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 went into law, I uh, saw really conspicuous change take place in the American cities that I lived in and visited during the 90s. And now the U.S. is is extremely friendly in terms of, of access, at least, of ramps, of lifts, parking, toilets. It's all, you know, it's all very good. We've got closed captioning, which is quite standard on television, and braille and beeping crosswalk signs and access for seeing eye dogs everywhere. It's, it's almost taken for granted as part of the American landscape now. Now, China is, of course, a very different story, and in many regards... Um, I guess one would expect that uh, that would be the case in a developing country, but I think many of us who've lived here in China can attest that it goes deeper than just a failure to make public facilities and businesses accessible to people, say, in wheelchairs or to the deaf or to the blind or to anyone with uh, physical or developmental disabilities. So today we're going to be talking to James Palmer, whose latest essay in the excellent online magazine Aeon looks at the plight of the disabled in modern China. It's uh, a very eye-opening piece, and we're delighted that James could be here to talk with us about it. Welcome back to Seneca, James. Hello. Uh, so your last visit with us, um, we, we talked about traditional Chinese medicine, and that was, how shall I put this, not our our, our, our most uniformly beloved show. We got a lot of... of, 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 of well, first time we've got real hate mail, yeah, I think. Yeah, so it, was, it was fun. So I hope that we, we can keep that going. No, I'm just joking. Um, and then we're... We're we're also very happy to have with us John Gieschek, who, in addition to holding a Guinness record for um, the most consecutive consonants and highest density of consonants in any surname, is also the general manager of Elliot's Corner, a pediatric therapy center uh, here in Beijing. He also happens to be the founder of Able Lives Incorporated, which is an assisted assistive technology social enterprise. John also formerly served as the, the national programs manager for Save the Children here in China, where he led the organization's programs and policy work with central government agencies on disability issues, education, health, and child protection. Uh, so he's obviously the right guest to be paired with James here. A uh, very warm welcome to you, John, and welcome to Seneca. Thank you very much for having me. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you recently... Uh, you had a couple of important things happened in your life, and I think not not in, in, you, you moved out of a courtyard that you shared with Josh Chin, and probably That's I'm correct. guessing. Because you couldn't stand him talking about netizen reaction to things on Weibo anymore. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> oh, okay. It was because you got married, right? That's so correct. Congrats, man. Congrats. Thank you. 
All right, let's 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 keep with you, John. Tell us a little bit about Elliot's Corner and about Able Lives. Sure, absolutely. Um, Elliot's Corner is part of the parent company called Olivia's Place, which was founded three and a half years ago in Shanghai by an American couple named Nelson and Gwen Chow. They had a daughter named Olivia who, uh, when she was born, they found out had Down syndrome. Mm. And uh, they couldn't find the services that they were looking for in Shanghai. So they set up a therapy center with some foreign uh, therapists to provide therapy for their daughter and other kids in Shanghai and it's grown really fast. So now we have two centers, one in Beijing and one in Shanghai, plus a couple therapists living in other places, uh, Tianjin, Nanjing, Changzhou. And we've got uh, 40 therapists now, uh, occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists, and psychologists, as well as some ABA people and learning support staff in Shanghai. And uh, we provide uh, support for kids in international schools, but also increasingly Chinese kids. Oh, so great, about great. 30% Chinese kids. Um, who is the eponymous Elliot? For ah, Elliot uh, is the son of our Beijing founder, uh, Jacqueline Chen. Um, her son named Elliot, uh, who has cerebral palsy, um, uh, is about the same age as Olivia. And they were friends in Shanghai when her family oh. lived there. And uh, she... Uh, decided to work with the founders of Olivia's Place and start a center in Beijing, which I now manage. Uh, at the top of this discussion, I, I thought I'd, I'd just like to ask, what is currently uh, the polite way to refer to people with disabilities, both in English and in Chinese? We don't want to get this wrong and, and you know get hate mail again, James. <laughs> oh, you left the hate mail. And I use the word polite, not politically correct because i'd like to leave the 90s behind us but what's the respectful term sure sure well uh the u.n convention on the persons with disabilities uses the term persons with disabilities that's very formal i think people with disabilities is pretty common in western countries now uh in chinese uh it's changed a lot in the last few years and um it's quite interesting actually so originally um tanfei was very common which is a very negative term and well, what does it mean exactly literally meaning of fei means yeah, waste. Right, right. And um, uh, now in the last few, well, so in the last 30 years or so, Sanji, uh, Sanji Ren is the most common. Um, and then in the last few years, uh, people in the uh, community of people with disabilities in China have brought other terms into more common usage. So one of them is Tan Zhang, Sanji uh, the Tan, and then Zhang Ai the Zhang. And uh, that term basically means sort of um, impaired person. And it's, then, it's kind of a portmanteau, right? I mean, yeah. It's, 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 right. And then there's a new uh, thing in fact, in vogue now among people working in this field, which is to say, um, yo, Zhang Ai, the Ren. So people uh, with disabilities with an impairment, with an impairment, an yeah. obstacle or challenge. Great. So what about abled lives, John? Uh, this is, sure. this is a, you see, you call it an, uh, a social enterprise. Yes, that's right. I founded the company uh, in November 2012 mm -hmm. uh, with a couple of friends, and we are working to bring some assistive technology from the United States and Canada that doesn't currently exist in China. So we're currently representing three companies here, um, and we're um, selling our products mostly to schools for children with disabilities and other organizations that are working with kids with disabilities. Okay, and you were with Save the Children from... From, from when 2008 to... Uh, to the end of 2012. Great. I want to turn now to 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 uh, to James and talk about your your piece in Aeon. Uh, the piece does two things. It looks at present realities. It locates the attitudes that give rise to those realities in sort of Confucian and in, in to some extent Chinese Buddhist precepts, right? But um, 
let's first get an idea of, of how the situation is right now, starting with sort of the upper tier cities and, you know, Beijing and Shanghai, uh, where all, many of our listeners may, might, might be more familiar, and then moving down to where more people live, I mean, into to the lower tier cities and then into the countryside and, and how things go. If you want to give us a quick painting of the well, the situation in the first tier cities, the you know Beijing, Shanghai, and so on, is relatively good for two reasons. Firstly, is that the way the Ch- Chinese Disabled Persons Federation collects money is from businesses, and the businesses, of course, are clustered in the big cities. Mm-hmm. So the CDPF in the cities has the money um, because it's flowing in from the businesses. The CDPF in the countryside, which is where the majority of disabled people are, doesn't have the money. And each branch, of course, is both reluctant and institutionally um, incapable, uh, for for technical reasons, of transferring the money from where it's not as needed to where it's desperately needed. So if you're in the city, you're in a relatively good position because there's funds sloshing around. And also... Ever since the Olympics and the Paralympics in particular, disabled access has been a lot better in Beijing. It's still not great, but ramps were put in, um, think uh, signs, postage, so uh, were installed. Um, they got those whatever it is, thirty six cabs to try to from London, which was supposed to help transport uh, people with disabilities around the city. Is that what those were? Yeah, for? that was the nominal. The nominal purpose was both a gift between London and Beijing, and that because the London cabs are so much better designed, so they have the space, they have that large space in the back that you can uh, access much more easily, if you're in a wheelchair in particular. Um, so they were supposed to be a, a, a gift linked to the Paralympics. Ah. Now, of course, there's I forget twenty four or thirty six of them or whatever, so they're not of any practical use. And even if you're on crutches, it's still almost impossible to get well it takes 10 or 15 tries um to get a to get a cab in beijing just being on crutches i i don't know what it's like if you're in a wheelchair i just happen to have a couple of friends who are remarkably good at breaking their legs and so was able to um field <laughs> test this. inept at using smartphone applications um well one of them got jumped on by a, a girl in a bar and that broke his ankle and then the other jumped on in, a, in the good sense or i mean oh, literally not, jumped, on, jumped on his back sense. and his, his oh, ankle uh, crumpled and then the other um, fell down the stairs in his own, uh, going down from his apartment. So, oh. you know, my friends are in some ways cognitively impaired, but also temporarily physically challenged. Now, what about further down? Well, in second tier cities, the access isn't so good because there wasn't that big push around 2008. But there's one of the other advantages of being in cities for people with disabilities is that it's much easier to find other people with a similar disability. And so you can congregate and sort of and find um, mutual help groups, uh, advocacy foundations, this kind of thing that people in the countryside have much more limited access to just by reason of numbers and infrastructure. And popular attitudes, would you say that those are, are, are different than I think as you move uh, prejudice, while to some degree universal can it can be worse in the countryside um but also in the countryside what you can sometimes get is a sense of local community um share uh familiarity with people and so on which can be a positive thing but i think that's relatively rare james may i interrupt you because what you've just said um doesn't quite fit the picture to me that you painted in your article which um it felt to me it was a description of um, a group of people who are marginalized and not looked after particularly well in China. Um, 
and that it it was it was quite gloomy. You know, your article did not leave one feeling happy. Well, I don't think the situation is good across the board. I mean, mm. even in Beijing, you know, there are plenty of issues, pl- plenty of prejudice. I mean, we haven't even got into the, the sort of situation with finding jobs. It's just that the situation in Beijing and Shanghai is better than the situation in the countryside. So but what what are the issues? A, this is better on a low scale. What are the issues well, that, that uh, people with disabilities face? Well, I think the um, principal one is access to services that everybody else enjoys. And now, of course, Chinese citizens' access to welfare is relatively limited as a whole. But in terms of, for instance, education, a very, very basic thing, it's really hard for people with disabilities to um, find a place in the regular education system. Um, now, by law or by regulation, I forget, you know, these things always get confused. The regulations say that the local authorities are obliged to provide educational facilities to special needs children, but they make no provision for how the funding for this is going to be allocated, what services should be set up. So the schools, so the regular schools can turn people away, can turn parents of special needs children away by saying the regulations say that you have to get that you go to some place set up for you, but then there is nowhere set up for them. So a, a regulation that should be protecting people actually ends up empowering prejudice, empowering um, the ability of regular schools to turn people away. Just John, to give some, yeah, um, yeah, give us a little more color on on the regulatory environment. I mean, James, I think sure. makes it clear that that uh, that on the books, at least, China is quite progressive in terms of, of yeah, but the reality falls short, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that 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 is correct. That the laws are are okay. I think there's definitely a lot of room for improvement in the laws, in particular, right as of right now, um, the 1994 regulations on education for people with disabilities still doesn't say that schools have to accept kids with disabilities. They still leave open the possibility that schools can refuse them, which they do, of course. Um, uh, to give you a sense of the scope of the problem, so the numbers are really actually very horrifying. So. Um, uh, China has 300 million uh, children, and so we would estimate in a population of children uh, based on other countries, about 10% of the population would have some kind of impairment or special need. And according to 2009 statistics, um, only 450,000 uh, children with disabilities were in school. Out of an estimated from, 30 million. Out of an estimate, so 1.5% basically. Uh, that's numbers from the Ministry of Education. The The number of children with disabilities in China is a very odd figure. There have been two big national surveys on disability in China, one in 87, one in 2006. And they found in 87, uh, 50 million people with disabilities, 83 million in 2006. Um, so the number of total people with disabilities went up by 60%. But the number of children went down from 10 million in 87 to 5 million in 2006. So there are several things going on there. One is uh, it's possible there were some flaws in the survey. Another, but the, the methodology was actually okay. So the more likely explanations are, one, there was a significant increase in abandonment and abortion for uh, the, uh, impairments that could be detected during pregnancy. And um, uh, abandonment is a really big problem, as James pointed out in his article, uh, 95% of kids with disabilities uh, or 95% of kids with in orphanages are children who have been abandoned because they have a disability. And um, this problem is really massive. And basically, the kids that are in those institutions don't get education. Mm-hmm. And there's really not good data on those uh, on those kids either. So, so the problem of abandonment is really massive. And then 
Um, well, as James pointed out already, the problem of services um, for the kids who aren't abandoned. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about this about um, w- when you can detect through amniocentesis or, or something some uh, genetic uh, uh, pro- problem. I, I know that um, the prevalence is is pretty high. Uh, it's probably pretty high. Uh, but I also do know of, 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 of say, a, f- a friend of mine, uh, Chiyong, who is the uh, f- former lead singer of the band Hebal, Black Panther. Uh, he, he's quite famous for having uh, for having a child who's now seven years old or so, who's a Down syndrome baby. And, and uh, is, is our attitudes changing about this, about this sort of almost eugenic practice of, of aborting fetuses that are found to have defects? I don't. I haven't seen any data that things are changing. I think it's still a pretty widespread practice. But certainly, I have similar sort of you know casual observations from friends, Chinese friends that I know, whose attitudes towards disability and you know whose um, perceptions of uh, the the potential challenges of having a kid, um, having a child with a disability, have changed so much in the last few years. So I think there does seem to be some kind of cultural shift, but. I haven't seen data. I think um, I think we see the the effective practice of eugenics reflected very much in the rural-urban split. That one of the reasons why people with disabilities are so clustered in rural areas, apart from obviously that they, it's much harder for them to move, so they can't be part of this sort of urbanization wave, is that people in rural areas have much less access to medical services. They're much less likely to get prenatal scans and so on, and so they're much less likely to detect. Um, these issues before right. birth, and less likely, and so less likely to abort. So, uh, if you're so fet- uh, fetuses with uh, developmental problems are m- um, more likely to go Be to aborted, full term right. in the in the countryside than in the right. city as a result. I mean, this is um, deduction. I don't have solid figures on this, but I suspect that this is one of the reasons why. The, the disability problem is so concentrated in the countryside. My, my, my feeling, Jeremy, back me up here if you think I'm right, uh, is that the general opprobrium that one would suffer for terminating a pregnancy on discovering uh, some kind of you know genetic problem, either Downs or something like, or something like it, uh, that you would suffer in the West would be considerably greater than you would in China. I, absolutely. I mean, you know, my daughter was born with a, a congenital defect that was uh, completely treatable by surgery, but it was a little complicated. And uh, one of the nurses kept on saying to me, you know, you're really good because you didn't chuck her out, you know, leave her out in the cold kind of thing. Oh, <laughs> you mean, know, and she, you know, this is, I mean, this is a nurse at one of Beijing's, you know, at Beijing Family United. I mean, she was talking about experience at other places, but yeah, the, the, that, those attitudes are extremely common and they're common in the city and they're common amongst people who have a lot of money. And the extent to which kids um, who get abandoned uh, don't get counted is incredible. Those numbers I just quoted a second ago, um, actually, when they did those surveys, they deliberately excluded the institutionalized population from oh. the survey. So um, kids in orphanages and adults as well in institutions don't count in those surveys. And they're basically just sort of left out of public policy. There's no real provision for education. In theory, there's supposed to be some kind of education that takes place in um, government orphanages, but in reality, um, you know, there's very very little that's provided for them. I think we have to remember, though, that even in the West, you know, this those attitudes still sometimes prevail. Now, of course, they're weaker than in China, but just to give a, a casual example, I have a friend who was born with a cleft palate, which is an entirely fixable problem, and he was um, he was being pushed along um, 
aged about two, and one of his mother's acquaintances sort of came over to, to look at him, and she looked in the pram, and she's like, oh, you wouldn't have thought they'd let him live, would you? Yes, Whenever I lived with him for two years, and um, whenever he would do something stupid, um, we would there would be a chorus of, ah, you wouldn't have thought you'd let him live. It's, uh, <laughs> Hi, Richard. Good to, if you're listening to this. <laughs> Can we look at the the roots, uh, the particularly Chinese factors? I mean, because it's not just in China, but is there something in China, and you t- you not touch on this, you look at this in, in depth in your article. That's right. In, in China that um, causes uh, children born with disabilities to be so... Um, yeah, yeah, James, walk us through this. I mean, you, you, you kind of locate a lot of the problem in uh, culturally grounded attitudes, mm. the, specific to Confucianism and to uh, certain types of Chinese Buddhism. I think it's a fusion of Confucianism and the obsession with national strength in the 20th century. Now, because the 20th century made these in China, you saw these very strong connections between the idea of the individual body and the idea of the national body. So one of the things you see, um, for instance, is this big emphasis on public sports, public health. This is how Mao started off. This is what he was writing about at the very, very beginning when he was still in Hunan, right? Uh, really, I yeah, wasn't yeah. actually. Uh, the, the, uh, I was surprised it wasn't in your piece. Actually, it's uh, he's uh, he he wrote all these essays about physical fitness and. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's um, but I mean that's an across the board obsession. I mean nationalist. Um, sure, the Kuomintang. The um, uh, and you see it in see it particularly in areas where Chinese. Um, masculinity or Chinese um, uh, sovereignty is challenged. So it's very strong in Dalian, for example, with the um, where there's this feeling of being challenged by the Japanese, and so there's all these sort of national sports program. There's all these sports programs, localized sports programs that strongly emphasize national strength. And so you had you already had these ideas in Confucianism that your child's body was a anybody's body is, a, but particularly the male body is part of a continuity of sort of um, both uh, of ancestry going back and stretching back into the past and stretching forward into the future. And if you fail, if you break that chain by not having children, by having a failed body, then that the failure is not only on you, it's on your parents. And there's also, going back, there's a long association in that Confucianism sort of carries over of mutilation and disability with criminality mm-hmm. because one of the common punishments for criminal behavior was mutilation in um, uh, in sort of uh, ancient China. And so you get, but you have this circle whereby, of course, the, the one of the reasons the punishment is mutilation is because of the horror of disability. And one of the reasons for the horror of disability is because the punishments of mutilation, so they feed into each other. I see. So this idea then combines in the 20th century with the fears about national strength, uh, about the about the the national and the individual body. And so, when you have a under this, when you had a disabled child, it was you were failing not only your family, as you were in the Confucian model, you were failing the country. So a whole weight of sort of um, opprobrium would be poured on parents, both uh, personally and even at a a sort of national level. Now, and the other thing was in, uh, now I've only researched this a little bit, so I'm I'm not 100%, but in the Maoist era, there were 
no provisions made for um, disabled people having less capability at certain at hard physical labor, for instance. So there were issues that if you had somebody in your downway who was not capable of pulling their weight, then the whole then of course you all suffered. If there were some if there were people in the village who couldn't pull their weight in agriculture in whatever task you were assigned, you all suffered. So these again these fears these individual sort of worries and fears became communalized. Um, I think in an even stronger way. Hmm. I, I wonder though whether whether the roots of this are are so much in in Confucianism and in specific ideologies, or even in in nationalism, or 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 just instead in in the practical reality of an agrarian labor intensive society where, uh, you know, it's another mouth to feed, but it's not it's not growing any rice. Uh, I mean, it, it's 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 one of those horrible realities of, and I think that you'd probably find these kinds of attitudes prevalent in any society, where uh, in any predominantly agrarian society. Well, except I mean, we have, um, to some degree, cross cultural examples. I mean, you have examples in Europe and so on where now disabled people in Europe certainly didn't face uh, an easy life or an easy road, but there was more social understanding. There was more placement for them within the, even the medieval European worldview than within the Chinese worldview. James, you didn't mention, but it is in your article, uh, you look at Buddhist attitudes. Uh, can you say something about that? Yeah, I think the the main thing you get in Buddhism, and of course it's hard to separate out Buddhism from sort of generalized Chinese folk religion, is the belief in reincarnation. And within that, of course, if you're born... Within sort of crude popular Buddhist theology, if you're born with a disability, it's because you sinned in a previous life. And even though, uh, even though Buddhist theology on the abstract level would not see any connection between the way you behaved in a previous life and the way you will behave in this life, there's a common fear in Buddhist countries that people with disabilities will have, in some sense, the, the stain, not only the physical, but a spiritual stain carried over from that life. So it becomes almost like caste in India. Mm. You're blamed for the situation into which you're born. It's not chance or it's not chance or luck. It's um it's your own it's in some way the disabled person's fault. And then there's also a very strong emphasis on Buddhism, and this is something that we don't see in our conceptions of Buddhism because we're so used to this rather bland version of Buddhism put forward in the West. Um there's this very strong emphasis on physical beauty and physical perfection. And if you go to Buddhist temples, you'll see the way in which the arhats and the bodhisattvas and so on are depicted. They're all very perfect physical specimens. They all match up to certain... A little tubby, maybe, but... <laughs> well, that's actually... My, my chair is kind of interesting, Milofa, because there's actually a, a legend that he was a village idiot, um, that the that the idea of the idea of the, the sort of the laughing Buddha is... There's a popular legend that... He was the sort of village fool who um, kept predicting the arrival of the Buddha and then one day disappeared mysteriously. And so, and he was famous also for being sort of kind and generous and so on. And then one day he disappears mysteriously and people realize that he was the Buddha all along. So, so that image, the, the image of the big, big old tubby Buddha, there's at least one strain of thought that says that this is a depiction of um, somebody with learning difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, the, the Buddhist images are very idealized, um, both artistically, for both artistic and theological reasons, because, again, the spiritual perfection of the Buddhas manifests itself, manifests in, the itself in the, the physical, physical and the, the, 
the uh, long and there's all these marks like the long earlobes for wisdom and so on, sure. which are, are very rigorously followed. And so I think all these things feed into each other. You can't single out one of them. Um, John, how do, I mean, you work, we've worked with a lot of persons with disabilities over the years here in China. Do you find evidence of this? Of, that there's sort of a, uh, any, any, any deeply rooted cultural stigma attached to, to it? Or? It's hard for me to say entirely. I mean, definitely, as you pointed out, and as James pointed out as well, you know, there have obviously been, there's been a lot of discrimination in pretty much every country against people with disabilities. So that is definitely the case. I think there is, there does often seem to be something a little bit deeper in China, that at least um, certainly deeper than anything that exists right now in what in your average Western country. Um, and uh, I I think there's definitely an argument to be made that it's cultural for people who've spent time here in the in the 70s or 80s or earlier than that and sort of looked at this issue and worked on it. You'll often hear them tell stories that are quite horrifying about um, infanticide and similar things. Of course, there's the famous uh, 1995 documentary, The Dying Rooms, that James brought up in his article, which you know caused a huge outcry in the Western world and. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, it was a BBC documentary. Do you want to... to, to uh, uh, Channel 4. Channel oh, it was 4. a Channel 4. I'm sorry. It was a Channel 4 documentary. Uh, yes. Yeah. So the journalists uh, responsible for the documentary snuck into some orphanages and filmed very um, gruesome, really abominable conditions uh, that kids were being held in, in the most severe sort of neglect. And, you know, for people who have spent time working with kids in this sort of situation, this isn't, unfortunately, something that's totally gone. gone. I, I have a, a friend who started a foster care home in the Beijing area for, uh, she's a Chinese woman, uh, for kids with disabilities. And um, she just a few years ago had a similar experience in Ningxia coming across a, a transit center where abandoned kids were being kept before being sent to orphanages in really terrible conditions. Mm. After the documentary came out in 95, uh, caused a huge uproar in Western countries. And as a result, the Chinese government closed off access to orphanages for foreigners. And um, as James uh, said in his article, I actually didn't know this, um, they also denied that the they the accused the reporters accurate. of having you know snuck in and stripped the children naked and chained them up themselves. I mean that sounds actually familiar to. I mean there there is this 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 old notion. You talk a little bit about Christianity, uh, and and, uh, and about um, how uh, missionary attitudes. Of course, I mean the ideas of Christ himself. He he was. Uh, all about you know reaching out to uh, washing the feet of lepers and that sort of thing right but uh, you know there's another tradition here in China where where in in the late 19th century um, many of the uh, the sort of xenophobic outbreaks uh, especially in Shandong province uh, were all about uh, the accusation that Christian missionaries were kidnapping uh, and even consuming uh, or sacrificing Chinese babies, and there was always this suspicion about that. Has this played into, do you think that there's some sort of, I, well, at, at some kind of uh, I, I, I do wonder, because, of course, the early Christian missions did make a point of taking in um, about children, children about to die who were, to baptize them, right? Yeah, who were more likely to have disabilities. And so, obviously, um, child kidnapping is one of those myths that springs up about every um, about every marginalized group at some time or another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it springs up in the Roman Empire about early Christians as well. Ironically, they're accused of kidnapping children to sacrifice in their rights, which a legend which the Christians then transfer onto Jews later. Mm. But I, I suspect that there may have also been some practical association because they saw these children being brought in. 
But I mean, uh, you consider, again, just to, to get a sense of um, that this has been a problem that's haunted, you know, plenty of problems, plenty of places, and particularly places on the cusp of modernity. In 19th century France, abandoned children were regularly, and I'm not exaggerating in any way, they were regularly piled into carts from the provinces to be taken to the to Paris to institutions in Paris I mean literally baby literally dozens of babies would be piled on top of each other and like sleeve ships that have 50 or 60 if not more of would die en route or if you look in the UK um, there's a reference in Gilbert and Sullivan to baby farming which people used to most casual listeners assume is a joke but was actually the practice of uh, renting out children to institutions that would deliberately underfeed them so that they gradually starved to death. Now, this was not just disabled children. This was unwanted children in general. But these are problems that are, were major sh social issues in the West in the 19th century. Um, now, I think they do persist in China to some degree more. But again, we shouldn't, you know, we you we have to remember how we have to remember how close all societies have been to the, these kind of practices. And what do you think, it, what factors uh, led, were the, uh, the things in society that really turned attitudes around? Well, do you think it's, it's a mere function of, of economic development or is there something more to it? John, do you want to? Well, I think economic development definitely plays a role. I think, um, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, as families change and don't have the same pressure for physical labor in the household, and as they have more wealth and free time and ability to take care of kids, then parents become um, defenders of their kids' rights. And they go out and really um, fight for their kids uh, to get education, to get access to the health services they need. And that starts to shape society. You have all kinds of parent groups that uh, start up and start putting pressure on governments to change policy. Um, of course, you have societal expectations changing as well. I mean, I think this is one of the really pressing issues in China right now at the top among the top leadership. When I was at Save the Children, we worked with the state council legislative office and the Ministry of Education's legislative office on um, the 1994 revisions to uh, the revisions to 1994 regulations on education for people with disabilities. And um, uh, we found definitely that uh, among the state council and ministry of education leaders, one of their top priorities, and they, they told, they said this quite openly is that they see 10, 20, 30 years down the road, that if something isn't done to solve the problem now and make society more inclusive, then they'll have an enormous bill on their hands for two reasons. One is that, uh, the cost of taking care of a person with a disability who um, isn't able to work and is excluded from society will continue to rise uh, very significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and the second reason is that society's expectations on the government for what the government will provide we'll is going to grow very uh, increase at a, yeah, a very increased rate. So, so you'll end up in a situation where you have an enormous bill on your hands if you're not able to get people with disabilities included in society and actually have them be working and being productive members. It's a real problem. Can I ask? <clears throat> um, are there any for-profit businesses that uh, exist to employ um, uh, people with disabilities um, and use them as a resource? And uh, aside from the, the blind masseur joints that you see all over China. Yes, yes. This is a growing thing now. So as James writes in his article, there, there's been a law in the books now for a number of years that um, if you aren't employing 1.5% of your uh, staff uh, 
aren't if they aren't people with disabilities then you have to pay a, a tax penalty and so there's been this economic incentive there for a long time despite that a lot of firms still haven't uh, done it but an increasing number of firms have and there are a few firms that are especially doing that there's a, a, a software company a computer software company in southern china i believe their name is tanyo that um, uh, specifically employs people with disabilities and there's a great group in beijing called beijing one plus one that does radio broadcasts and other programs. They train um, uh, people with visual impairments in a whole bunch of different skill areas, including stenography and others. Is this on the map for uh, in terms of corporate CSR uh, with not just you know multinationals, but I'm talking about big Chinese enterprises? I know speaking for Baidu, uh, we do quite a bit. I mean, you know, we, we have search services for, for the visually impaired, for example, or uh, I know that we're, we're very, very assiduous about access. Everything's ramped. We have... Uh, but, you know, handicapped access bathrooms on every floor. All of our bathrooms have. have uh, oh. So we're, we're pretty good about that. And I know that there are several. I know I've seen three or four people around at headquarters who are, are you know, in wheelchairs and have obvious, uh, you know, what, uh, what do we call motor disabilities. Yeah, um, I, I think um, there's definitely been some shift for sure. Uh, I think it's getting a little bit better. Um, but... I don't think there's been a, a broad change, and I don't think it's been a huge issue in the CSR world as far as I've seen. Um, I know that there have been discussions, and um, there have been, I think, AmCham last year hosted a series of lectures, or was it the year before last, on, on the topic. And um, uh, But I don't think there's been a broad shift, in, mm, unfortunately. And, that is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I wish it would be bigger. I think that um, also with a lot of Chinese companies, you'll see this thing where um, like a lot of things in the Chinese government, it goes in these waves of campaigns. So they'll have a kind of campaign to push something for a certain period. But then after that campaign finishes, then they'll kind of revert back. So maybe the equipment might stay there, but the people might actually not continue to work there. <laughs> One uh, thing that's there... become very common is for people to be employed sort of in a fake way for a company. So they right. are on the books, but they don't actually come to the office. Their wages just come in under that tax penalty. They exactly. Would, right. Um, uh, James, John, both of you, either of you can answer this. Are there uh, figures in today who loom as large as as Deng Pufang in you know some years ago? Deng Pufang is is, is mentioned in in your in your piece. Uh, you made mention earlier about the organization that he helped to to create the China Disabled Persons Federation. I don't who, think anybody has reached anywhere near the same stage. Well, as that, talk talk that about he who did, he is first. Just give give us. A... So he was um, Deng Xiaoping's son, who was uh, I. Uh, jumped out of a window during the Cultural Revolution to escape torture, and became a paraplegic as a result. Yes, yeah, and he he spent many painful months um, without treatment in his uh, parents' home in Beijing. In fact, I mean, just sort of being looked after by his family. But he was a hugely powerful figure because he came to represent, or he came to represent a whole generation of people who had been crippled by the Cultural Revolution. He was, of course, the the paramount leader's son, and there were. In the 1980s, he was not only known to everybody in China, there were a whole range of myths and legends about him. There was a whole lot of storytelling about him, both in both within sort of disabled communities and in the general population as a whole, about the extent of his injuries, about what he could and couldn't do. So he was an almost mythologized figure, and he had a kind of power and influence that is probably unprecedented. Um, and I don't think there's anybody nowadays that has anywhere near a fraction of that kind of influence. And he established this He established what was originally an advocacy group, what was originally a pressure group, which has now become 
effectively a, a government or quasi-governmental institution. Now, what we are seeing now is we're seeing um, a, ri- uh, a big rise in advocacy groups, again, founded by people with disabilities. Um, they tend to be, but they don't have the same clout as the Chinese Disabled P- uh, Persons Federation did because they don't have the ties to the national leadership. They're not coming off the back of a whole group of people who were um, with connections with political power who were themselves uh, rendered, uh, who, who during the Cultural Revolution were left um, unable to walk or with mm-hmm. broken hands, broken fingers, blinded, all these hideous things. Um, but they're very powerful, very uh, um, intelligent groups. They're much more splintered and they tend to focus more tightly on uh, individual disabilities such as Blindness, um, such as wheelchairs or blindness or deafness, rather than um, being a rather than being a movement type, as a whole. Right. Now that's partially, of course, because if they did form into a movement as a whole, they would be more likely to be targeted. Right. Speaking of targeted, let's let's talk about how foreign NGOs who work in this area and and John, you have a lot of experience with this. How what kind of a welcome are they given these days in in, in Xi Jinping's China? Are are you viewed with suspicion, or are you viewed are are you welcomed with open arms? Mm. Well. It, you can break it down into a few different groups, I would say. And so um, there's definitely a group of organizations under which I would say Save the Children is a part where um, our programs were very connected to and very involved with um, central government ministries. Those were our main partners, and we were very transparent with them. And so um, they look at us as a, a resource of technical support. You know, one of the really shocking things when you work with central government ministries is how few people there are there. The entire uh, special education division in the Ministry of Education has two people. The two entire people special the education entire division country. in yes. the entire... Yes, early childhood development, also two people. Uh, the Legislative Affairs Office, three people. The equivalent office in the American uh, Department of Education has over 800 people across 12 offices around the United States at the central level, Good. at the federal level. So, God. Yeah, so there's very few people. That's one of the things, uh, you, you sort of imagine the Chinese government as like this massive bureaucracy. Well But actually, most of the ministries are these very thin skeletons that they deliberately sort of starve um, so that they don't become too inflated or bloated, I guess. And actually, I don't totally understand the logic behind it because it makes, them very, it, makes it very difficult for them to implement programs effectively, as you can imagine. So... Um, uh, Basically, uh, when we're working with government agencies, they're quite eager for support and help and any technical resources we can provide. That said, uh, not all NGOs are in that boat. Um, I would say, uh, you know, the the most interesting groups, I would say, are the ones that James was just referring to, the younger uh, groups founded by young people with disabilities and also parents of uh, children with disabilities. And I'd say for the most part, the parent groups are not very politically sensitive and it's actually a quite interesting area in Chinese civil society because they have quite a bit of space to develop. Uh, For the groups of young people with disabilities, it depends. Um, I think for the most part, uh, they've been uh, uh, treated quite well and don't have, don't face significant problems, Uh, but they're, uh, they are becoming increasingly vocal. Um, last year, one of the groups in Beijing filed the first ever, or two years ago, rather, the first ever NGO uh, shadow report to the UN uh, Convention on Rights of People with Disabilities Committee. Um, and I think that caused some tension. And uh, uh, I think that will continue to grow as there. That was a Chinese NGO. Yes. Okay. Without without sort of the guiding hand of some. That's form. correct. Right. They did it independently. Just wanted to pick up on the point about parents. 
Now, again, this sort of points to the urban-rural divide, because in the cities, when parents of children with disabilities do have this sort of civil society space, they're able to come together, they're able to form groups. In the countryside, if you're a parent, if you're the parent of a dis- disabled child and you start to make noise, you're much more likely to be stamped down or stamped on, because that's how the countryside works. Um, and you're much less likely to be able to access other parents with the same uh, issues. So one of the one of the things why I think China has been held held back on these issues is because across the areas that most need it, parents pressure groups haven't been able to come together in a lot of places because troublemaking is so stamped down, and they end up. Um, there's a fair number of petitioners who ha- um, are parents of disabled people, for instance, uh, and once you're pushed into the petition system, as you know, your case is effectively dead. You're you're labelled as a um, as difficult, and you know you're not going to get anywhere. And so I think, uh, I think one of the the positive things may be that we see these groups forming in the cities and then pushing out into the countryside a little bit, um, finding people in the countryside and bringing them in, especially as um, access to the internet spreads. I mean, the internet, of course, has been a, a huge factor here. This is. Uh, I was just going to add one really quick thing, which is I think that this is um, this whole topic that we're talking about is one of the areas where you can really see the very marked disadvantages to a society where you don't have democratic institutions. You know, I think in recent years, as China's been so successful, a lot of other developing countries have looked to Chinese governance model as, uh, you know, a very appealing option because they've um, been able to achieve so much economically. But you can really see that uh, in this area of providing for marginalized groups, uh, it's not effective at all. And in fact, if you don't have that ability for parents and people in civil society to form groups and put pressure on government, then it's really challenging to overcome. Mm-hmm. How about on the internet? <clears throat> are there are there websites, uh, online gathering places for families and, and, and people with disabilities? Yeah, a lot's happening on the internet, definitely. There's all kinds of things, uh, everything from, you know, QQ groups to websites to um, so you know, groups that have organized support groups, uh, etc. Um, yeah, definitely, there's a lot. And there's this business too. There's um, people. I mean, there's Taob. Uh, I've seen disabled people talking about being Taobao sellers, for instance, because they don't have the. If they were ordinary shopkeepers, they would have the problems of uh, maybe facing prejudice from people not wanting to come into the shop. But you know, online, nobody knows. Nobody so knows you're a dog on the internet. Nobody knows you're in a wheelchair. Um, so it's been empowering in a lot of ways. But again. Of course, it, it's limited to those areas which have um, access to the internet, easy access to the internet. And I think we will see positive changes as mobile internet brings this stuff into the countryside. And, and we've not seen any real efforts to, to, to uh, stymie organization by uh, groups lobbying on behalf, uh, sort of grassroots groups on the internet. Uh, we don't see sort of censorship rearing its ugly head in, in this matter. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, so sort of like the environment. Of, uh, I mean, they're allowing quite a bit of... of, of sure, of, sure. Yeah. yeah, not that I'm aware of in terms of the sort of um, uh, groups that are focused on the sort of lightest issues, you know. Uh, but but I think if it gets a little bit closer to the heart of things, that I mean, James cited a report uh, produced by the group. Um, uh, I'm blanking on their name now. Can you remind me? The one that did the report about government. Um, oh, the number of, was it? Yeah, Yiren Ping, of course. Yeah. And, um, so, say again? Uh, Yiren Ping. Uh, Yiren yeah. Ping. And uh, uh, so they've they've actually decided that this they want this to be one of their bigger areas of advocacy because they feel it's a little bit less sensitive. Um, but I think, you know, they, of course, still feel pressure from the government. Um, um, there's also a lot of 
the Chinese government opened up a lot of space by signing on to the UN um, Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Um, in the same way as the Soviet Union did when it signed on to the Helsinki Human Rights Accords, for instance, it opens up a space for people to protest, for people to make this case and say, but look, the highest levels of the government have approved this. And so particularly in China, where there's that huge gulf between central and local authorities, if you can take these things to the local authorities and say, the central government is doing this, the central government says this, then you have a sort of shield of legitimacy under which to to uh, pressure local government. It doesn't always work, but it's it can be a very effective campaigning tactic. Yeah, and I, I think it's, um, you can't um, overstate actually, I think it's something that's been missed a bit is how much the convention has really made a difference in China, that it's really driven a lot of new legislation and revisions to old legislation. And it's um, uh, set some standards and priorities here that people are aiming towards now that didn't exist before. So if you had to uh, narrow down a, a couple of areas in which people should be focusing their efforts, uh, I'm not talking just about say, foreign NGOs, but also about grassroots organizations in, in China uh, that will have uh, a mo- uh, the, the biggest impact on the, the overall situation for people with disabilities. Uh, where would you, where, would you, what would you single out? Well, I guess I would probably single out the thing I'm working on the most right now. <laughs> so um, training therapists. Uh, for historical reasons, uh, China has never developed the fields of physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. So China, in China, um, the field, there's one general license. There's one general license and degree program for rehab. And rehab includes, uh, in theory, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, prosthetics, orthotics, Chinese mm-hmm. acupuncture, Chinese massage, Chinese medicine baths and um, modalities, which is basically machines. And um, because there are no master's or PhD programs in rehabilitation in China, there are no faculty to teach at universities. So all the faculty come from Chinese medicine backgrounds and have no training in PT, OT, or speech therapy. So, and there have never been degree programs in PT and OT until the last few years. And there have never been any speech therapy degree programs at medical schools until just this past September, one school started one, um, and only a, a few at some teachers' colleges. So it's re- got a long way to go I'm, there. I'm flabbergasted. This is just, I mean, it's, it's situation is... I actually wanted to put this in the article because John was telling me about it when I interviewed him before, but then I realized, you know, I really bashed grim. TCM enough for <laughs> one lifetime. Um, okay, no, we'll, no, we'll you there. haven't. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> let's, um, let's, that's terrific. I, I, I want one more thing. Um, make sure, John, that you leave us with a good list of, of organizations that you would get behind uh, because I think a lot of listeners will be interested in how they can get involved, either just through donations or, or, or through through uh, volunteer work or, or what have you. Uh, so, you know, we, we'll, we'll make sure to put all those links on uh, the podcast page and, and, and hopefully some of our listeners will be stirred to action. Uh, guys, that, that was a great conversation. I want to uh, move now to our, our recommendations section, uh, get away from this heavy stuff for, for a bit. And uh, let's start with you, James. What do you have for us this week? Well, I wanted to recommend a book that doesn't seem to have got a lot of attention, but that deserves to be read, and that's John Osberg's Anxious Wealth. This came out last year, Mm -hmm. and it's an anthropological study of the new rich business and crime in uh, Sichuan, Chengdu, I think. And he lived there for several years. He was friends with, he got himself into sort of these business slash gangster circles by being the token white guy, by being the guy they brought along to show that they were cosmopolitan, that they had contacts with the outside world. And it's a really fabulous book that about 
um, the social insecurity of being rich in China, um, the the cultural insecurity, um, and it explained to me or clarified to me a lot of practices that, that I'd seen, but wasn't fully certain of sort of their their function. So he talks uh, he talks about mistresses, he talks about banquets, he talks about um, he he talks about the lack of hobbies and the need to be in this continual sort of social world that nobody actually likes in order to sustain connections, in order to sustain a sense of being trustworthy. It's a fantastic book. It's very well written. I thoroughly recommend it. I, I'm, I'm astonished that I've never heard of it. Yeah, Jeremy, I mean, me, neither. Heard of this, me neither. Me neither. It sounds great. Yeah, I'm going to rush right out and get it. John, what do you have for us? Um, I, I will recommend uh, a book called The Man He Became, which is a new book about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his uh, struggles with polio and in particular, um, how he basically turned himself into a physical therapist. <laughs> um, he sort of actually made the huge contribution to the development of the of hydrotherapy, a division of physical therapy. Um, uh, and there's a common myth in America that he tried to hide his uh, disability from the American public. Yeah, but I actually, heard that. Yeah, but actually that's not the case at all. He actually used it very extensively in his political campaigns. Um, as a, a part of his stump speeches and a big part of uh, the identifying defining who he was to the American public, and uh, it's true that he did hide uh, hide it uh, when on camera um, and when being photographed, um, and he worked very hard at that. Um, he basically couldn't walk, um, but uh, the book has a really fascinating look at um, his work on developing physical therapy, how he used uh, his disability in politics, and um, I think a big part of how. Uh, the perceptions of disability in America changed uh, during the 20th century. Very good. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I, something that probably most of our listeners are familiar with is the Shanghai-based journalist Adam Minter, his book Junkyard Planet, which I've been reading in preparation for interviewing him at the Beijing Book Fest in, in March. And I think we're going to make a cynical podcast out of it. So Adam's family business, uh, his parents' business was um, scrapyard, junkyard. He said Adam's family. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, the junkyard is maybe more interesting than the Adams family, really. I mean, I, I, he he does open you up to this world that you'd never considered, and it's not a regular China book because he's actually not really writing about China. He's writing about the global scrap business. It just happens that China is a, a very very important part of this, and he's got scrap in his in his veins. You know, he learnt about the scrap business from his granny. So, uh, and I wasn't uh, prepared for the the sort of family side of of, uh, of the book that's in this. Uh, uh, so anyway, good book, Great. Junk, I, Junkyard I, Planet, and we'll, we'll have Adam on the show fairly soon. I'm, I'm going to make a, a gigantic departure from anything related to either today's topic or China. And the only thing that this has to do with anything is that that James is sitting across from me. We for the last week we've exchanged quite a number of emails and have been uh, chatting about uh, what I think is probably the best prestige television uh, show to come along in oh, forever. Uh, it's called True Detective. I'm sure many of you have already been watching it pretty avidly. It stars Woody Harrelson and, and a, a, just, a, just a masterful performance by, by Matthew McConaughey. Um, and James has been turning me on to uh, works. Uh, you know, the, the, the great thing about this is it starts off as sort of, it looks like another procedural, uh, but it it... it moves very, very quickly into the darkly philosophical 
uh, and into you know it touches on the occult, the metaphysical, the, the supernatural, and the, and the horror genre, uh, which I am not alt. I mean, I, I read you know like everyone else, H.P. Lovecraft. Anyone else ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Read all that stuff, but. Uh, I, I hadn't realized uh, that there's this whole, there's this great mythos behind it. I mean, so True Detective draws very strongly on the works of uh, both Robert Chambers and Thomas the Gotti. Now, Chambers was this late 19th century American writer who wrote mostly crap short stories. Yeah, and then this I one, tried reading them. They're terrible. Well, no, there's this one, then there's this one book, The King in Yellow, with two astonishing stories. Um, firstly, The King in Yellow, which is mm-hmm. about this sort of decadent play. And secondly, The Repairer of Reputations, which is this uncannily great story about madness and alternative histories and just just so far beyond all his other work that um it it makes you a little uneasy and how great it is Hmm. and one of his ideas is he introduced the idea of um the king in yellow this kind of corrupting influence that leaks into our reality and true detective has been playing with this so that the world of the world of crime the world of the hidden is linked to the world of the occult, again, which literally means hidden. And so there's this continual sense in the show that the the reality of the show itself is sort of breaking down, that the universe is being intruded into by other elements. Uh, And um, one of the main protagonists, uh, played brilliantly by an incredibly skinny Matthew McConaughey, um, talks... uh, his philosophy is almost entirely taken from a modern writer who draws very heavily on Robert Chambers, uh, Ligotti. Thomas Ligotti, mm-hmm. uh, who's an extreme anti-humanist and wrote a book called, um, oh, The the Case Against the Human Race, mm-hmm. something the case like this. The human race. Yeah. And many of his, his uh, sayings are taken more or less verbatim from this book. So it builds this tremendous sense of unease and fear and discomfort um, to an... Uh, it's a, a show, I think, quite unlike anything we've seen on, on television in years. Highly recommend it. Um, Ed Wong is another regular Seneca guest who's who's been kind of fanatical about this, and the three of us have been have been chatting up a lot I've been discovering, too, that uh, the crossover between gaming nerd and China nerd is about as strong as you'd expect, and I hope we will, <laughs> in fact, at some point have a Seneca podcast where about- Kaiser and I just play Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gonna happen, man. It's not gonna happen. Not, uh, not, not if I'm involved. <laughs> All right, Jeremy's hey. gonna be an elf. <laughs> Thanks, guys. John, it was great to have you, man. Finally, thank you very much. Show. Oh, did you want me to give that list of organizations? I'll, I'll just say one or two, maybe. So, okay, and then we'll so, put more on the list, though. Okay, sounds good. So, uh, I would definitely recommend if there's any way to support Beijing One Plus One. They're mm-hmm. an amazing organization, making radio broadcasts in 80 stations all over China, and doing all kinds of other great projects, training people, and also doing really great advocacy work. Um, so. And another one more organization, just for, for to oh wrap sure, Hefei Chunya. Hefei Chunya was started in the early two thousands in Anhui. A flock of ducks in Hefei. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, like I Chun? can't remember actually. Spring sprout, spring sprout, Chunya, yeah, Chun, yeah. yeah. Not Chun. and um, uh, yeah, so they're a great group of people started also by young people with disabilities, and they do services mostly therapy and education stuff, daycare for. Uh, kids with disabilities who can't afford it otherwise. Excellent. All right. Hey, thanks everyone for joining us, and we will see you next week on the Cynic Podcast. Take care.